Hey, this is Michael Russell, and this is the Walkins Welcome podcast. The opening episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the premiere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, again, I'm Michael Russell. I'm the restaurant critic at, for the Oregonian in Portland, Oregon. Um, although we kind of see this as more of a nationally focused podcast, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about Portland along the way. Uh, given that we both live here. And Gary? It's me, Gary the Foodie, Gary Okazaki. Hi, everybody. I'm back on the air. I've been gone for months, but I am I now hopefully have a new podcast, Podcast Mate. So to start off the show, uh, I hope every week to talk about uh, where in the world Gary Okazaki's been, because you are a frequent traveler. Uh, so can you tell me where you've been in the past week? In the past week, I was in Tokyo, but I just didn't start in Tokyo. I flew from here to San Francisco, where I dined at Institute, Quince, and Italia Cran all on the same day. So that's like six Michelin stars in one day. Then I flew from San Francisco to Los Angeles and hung out in Manhattan Beach. And ate at David Lafay's two restaurants, Manhattan Beach Post and Fishing with Dynamite. Love Fishing with Dynamite. If you want great seafood, go there. And backtrack, backtrack a little bit. You have regarding San Francisco, you have three of the best restaurants in the world. So any of highly recommend Quince, Italia Cran, and Institute. Then I flew from LAX to Tokyo for a week. Then I flew back from Tokyo to LAX, and I went to a few restaurants. One of which we'll talk about on Sunday. One of them is new and highly anticipated. So that was what I did last week. And the prior, just a week before that, I was in London. It's my third London trip in um, four and a half months. So you're, a lot of traveling. You're a maniac, man. I don't oh. know how you keep up that itinerary. And I'll, I'll, be in talk about that. I'll be in Toronto like the next day or two. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, one of the first things we want to talk about is uh, in each podcast is to highlight some of the new restaurants that we're most excited about. Um, you know, the place that you went, if I'll reveal it now is Simone. And, and the, 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 the chef de cuisine executive chef is Jessica Largi, who used to be the chef de cuisine at Manresa, three mission star Manresa, Manresa in Los Gatos. Jessica won the James Beard Award for Outstanding as Rising Star Chef, I believe it was 2015, and she left Manresa right after winning the award, and she's been trying to open Simone for the last few years. There have been numerous delays, but it finally opened on September 20th, and I was there on the 24th and had dinner there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that this is one of those like here in Portland we have Le Pigeon, but everyone calls it Le Pigeon. I think. Simone is probably just Simone because it's named for Nina Simone, right? right. The singer. Exactly. Exactly. So um, what kind of food is it? It's it's using, um, it's actually very rustic, rustic and straightforward food. Surprisingly so. I didn't know what to expect. I expected maybe something a little bit more elevated. And it's very approachable and accessible. One of my favorite dishes was in... It's like an avocado toast. The twist on it was she put abalone on top of the avocado. And I thought it was an, a, a nice, unique twist. I thought it was well done. The burrata is a little bit unusual, too. So you see, they're, they're very, they're not overly sophisticated dishes. It's, a, it's not a huge restaurant, but it's a bigger restaurant. So it's, you can't really cook 
three Michelin star food or even two Michelin star food, trying to do 100, 200 covers, unless you have the kitchen of Le Bernardin. And it's, it was the fourth day that they were open, so there, are, there were issues. Um, was I disappointed? I can't. I mean, I, my expectations levels were so high, and it's not really fair to Jessica and the staff there. What really surprised me is I kind of sort of hate the cocktail scene in Los Angeles. So I walk in, I get there early, and I'm, they give me a cocktail menu, and it's a bound book. And in it is the history of Arts District. And each era has some cocktails associated with that era. And I'm thinking, holy crap, am I in London? And I said, I, I said, who did this cocktail menu? And this big, tall gentleman comes up and said, I did. And he has this United Kingdom accent. I said, are you from London? He said, no, I'm from Edinburgh. I said, oh, that's amazing. This is just like an amazing uh, cocktail book. Feels like I'm in London. He said, yeah, I have, a, I have three bars in Scotland. And one of them is Panda and Sons, which just got named the 61st best cocktail bar in the world last week. There's a similar cocktail there's a cocktail list top 50 which actually is the top 100 that is similar to the san pellegrino top 50 top 100 restaurant list which is world famous and panda and sons that's where panda express came out of right <laughs> <laughs> i do love panda express um yeah so yeah the, the cocktail menu at uh simone and the, the the bar is actually within simone but it's actually there's a separate name called dualo uh, and his name's Ian McPherson, and he's going to spend half the time in L.A. and half the time back in Scotland. Mm. Um, so, you know, at, go to Duolo, have some cocktails, have Ian's cocktails. They're fantastic. It's the best cocktails I've had in Los Angeles. So what is this trend uh, of restaurants having separate names for their cocktail bars? Yeah, I don't get Can you name? I don't know. Who, who else does that? Well, I mean, even here in Portland, I guess you could point to Ash Bar at Nomad as oh, being yeah. that. Um, uh, I know. I can think of another one. A Lightner's Place in New York. Um, I'm blanking on the name a, right a, now. Atera? Atera had a basement cocktail bar that was a separate I, I had no idea. I yeah, didn't know they, that. Maybe they invented no, it. No, but I know. Uh, you know, other people have been saying that. And I didn't know. Does it feel when you're at Dualo like you're at no. a cocktail? Like, let's go to Dualo. No. No, but we... it, it, that's why I don't know why they need to do that because... I still, on when I IG'd it, Instagrammed it, I still called it Simone, the, the bar in Simone. Because there, there isn't even an Instagram handle for Duolo. So, mm. so I don't know what the point of it is. Because um, it's inside Simone. Um, oh, yeah. The other thing I need to mention is there will be a chef's counter at Simone. And I think that's where Jessica can really, is really going to show more elevated food i would imagine because nothing on that menu on the chef's counter menu will be on the regular menu and there's i looked at it i mean i just looked at the area there must be like four seats maybe but it's gonna be a few months before that happens so i'm excited excited about that so i'll be when i go back i'll be doing the chef's counter nice nice so tell me um we can move off simone soon but i'm just curious what uh, you said she wins this james beard rising star award in 2015 leaves immediately now it's 2018. That's a huge gap. Do you know what she was doing in those three She years? was trying to make this work. I mean, there were uh, there were just delays, uh, construction delays, probably permitting delays. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe some investor issue. You know who her main investor is? One of her main investors? Joe Russo. You know who Joe Russo is? He's a Marvel director. Yeah. I only know that because I was reading about it. Oh, okay. prepping for this podcast. Yeah. I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have known his name. He doesn't jump out as like a famous Marvel director. To so me. at at the opening pre-opening 
event, there was Scarlett Johansson, there was John Cheadle, there was Marissa Tomei. So, and all the, she, Joe also produces Community. So, um, Jillian or Gillian Jacobs was there. Joe McHale was there. Um, Yvette Brown was there. So let's just quickly talk about two other restaurant openings that sort of caught my eye. Uh, I'll talk about one and then I'll throw it over to you for the other. Um, so I just, uh, we, our friend Bill Addison, who works for eater.com, reviewed a place called Kith and Kin in Washington, D.C., and he went pretty deep on it. This is the uh, second restaurant for a chef named uh, Kwame Onwache, who was on Top Chef season, I believe, 13 in California. Um, and Kwame opened, a sounded like a pretty high end tasting menu spot that was panned. It closed within two and a half months of opening. And this is his second place. And it is sort of a mix of West African and Caribbean food. And our friend Bill pretty much seemed to be raving about it. Um, especially some of the more intense jerk preparations, jerk, jerk chicken. Uh, that was the kind of review that uh, makes me want to fly out and eat at a place. So the other place that caught my eye this week is, although to be clear, Kith and Kin opened up, uh, didn't just open, it was just reviewed. The other place that caught my eye is Angler, which is the second re- restaurant from the chef at Cezanne in San Francisco. And what do you know about Angler, Gary? Joshua Skeens is the chef. And at one point, Cezanne was a $398 tasting menu. I believe... Uh, the, the price of the tasting menu has been lowered, or maybe there are more than one option to the tasting menu at Saison. And I have very few restaurants. I graded on a scale from 1 to 20. And I have very, very few restaurants, I think like seven restaurants, that I think are 20 out of 20, or that have scored 20 out of 20. I've been to Saison like eight times. The first few, I wouldn't have given 20 out of 20. The last couple, I would give and i did give 20 out of 20 so joshua cooks at an incredibly high level he had he's fanatical about getting the best ingredients and doing and not manipulating them so much for example like a i got a champagne sorbet once and instead of just using some cheap champagne he used krug to make the champagne sorbet who can i mean You'd have to, you have to have a major palate, a really sensitive palate to know the difference between some $10 champagne and a $150 bottle of Krug or $200. I don't know how much Krug costs. I can't afford it. So it, it, so, in, so what he decided to do is instead of, I mean, step, he step, he's stepping back seemingly away from Cezanne a little bit because Laurent Gras from L2O is take is kind of like they're helping out i don't know exactly what role laurent has so joshua decided to go more casual with angler i think it's probably repeatable and and um he can do it in other cities in fact he intends to do it in los angeles later this year i don't think it'll be open this later this year but we'll see and it's it's this is more of a casual a la carte saison but and just not as expensive uh, I believe appetizers are on 12 to 28 and main courses are on 28 to 48. And again, finding like the best ingredients possible, drilling it, uh, serving it straightforward. Um, I, I'm excited to go. I, I, I don't know when I'll be able to go, but it sounds. So it's not on your list of here's a place I need to be in the first week of opening. Well, it's, you know, it's hard for me to, do that for places outside of Portland. I just happened to be, I got lucky with Simone. I've been, you know, I've been 
another place I'm really excited about is Nightshade. And every time I go to Los Angeles, I ask Maylin because it's it's a Maylin project winner of Top Chef. Um, I asked, can I go now? Are you ready? Are you open yet? She said, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. Well, I'm coming back in month X. Will you be ready? Well, I don't know. We'll see. So I'm still waiting to go to Nightshade. I would love to be there the first week Nightshade opens. But again, it's just some, I happen to fortunately be in Los Angeles at the time that Simone opened. But I would, I would love to go to Angler. There's a lot of places I'm, I'm excited to go to, new places I'm excited to go to that just haven't hit yet. I remember when Cezanne opened, there was a review in like SF Magazine, and they were just asking the question like, can a restaurant this expensive ever be worth it? And there was a time, as you pointed out, the tasting menu was 398, let's say 400 bucks. You add on tax and tip dinner for two before you even have a drink of wine is going to at the time was over a thousand dollars. They've lowered the everyday tasting menu to 298. So I don't know, 850. I'm not sure what the math is on that, but I, I, I always thought this, this restaurant cannot exist without Silicon Valley. And by yes. that, I mean, yes. without having a huge base of people with, so much money where a dinner for two for a thousand dollars is not something that they need to think twice about. And therefore I wasn't that interested in the restaurant. I mean, hearing you say it's, it it achieves a perfect score on your 20 out of 20 scale is intriguing. I mean, that means it's more than just a lark, but I I can't say I've ever been like super, super interested in going to Saison. And and part of it is, I think I don't, I don't don't know if Joshua has to worry so much about the profit and loss of the restaurant. I don't know. I Maybe his investors, I don't know, but maybe his investors have deep pockets where it's just trying to attain perfection. Another example would be single thread, which I have no idea what that build up build out would be in single thread. I'm guessing 25, 30 million. I don't know. And again, will the investors ever get their money back? I, I don't know, but I don't think that's probably what their intent was. You invest, it's more like a, a vanity investment. Or like a patron system. Like exactly. Old... Yeah. And I, I love that. I mean, it's great for diners who can afford it. Again, we're talking about the one percenters, which, you know, Michael and I have talked about the one percenters before. And, you know, it is what it is. Um, and that's why, you know, for Michael, I think he likes more approachable, accessible restaurants. And, you know, I do too. But, well, not as, I'm, a grand, I'm I have a predilection for fine dining. Yeah, yes, it's always been that case. You're you're like at the really low end and the really high end. Yeah, right? that's right. And I'm right in Mc- the middle. McDonald's, yeah. Panda Express. After <laughs> getting up for long flights, it goes straight to Panda Express in Portland, Portland International. Well, Airport. it's also to go back to Simone. It's great to hear Scotland has a great cocktail scene. I had no idea that. Well, at least they have one bar that's great, Panda <laughs> and Sons. Go there. But I mean, go to if you go to Los Angeles and look for a place to drink. Go to Dualo inside Simone and. And maybe Ian will be behind the bar because Ian made my cocktails on Sunday night. They're fantastic. I'll tell you my experience with drinking in Scotland is a little more lowbrow. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to our next topic. Um, so it sounds like Chicago is about to get its uh, Michelin stars uh, maybe tomorrow or the next day. Do you know which day it is? I think it's uh, tomorrow, which is Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday, the 20, whatever. 26th. So we're recording this on Tuesday, the 25th. Um, so uh, the Chicago Tribune dropped some predictions of what they thought might be on it. Can I, can I give my predictions? I didn't. I, I I know what I have three major predictions. I mean, I've been kind of out of t- oh, I've I've been to Chicago a couple times this year, and to me, 
Smith, which is owned by John John Shields and Karen Yeri Shields, deserves three stars, and I and I think it will get into three stars tomorrow. But who knows? With Michelin, you just never know. Another restaurant is called Temperus. It's um, owned by Donald Young and Sam Plotnick. They're very young. Donald's under 30 and Sam is like 31, 32. And they do everything literally themselves. I think they may even wash their own dishes. It's very upscale, very small, very intimate and personal. I most definitely think it deserves a star. To me, there's absolutely no question. There's some starred restaurants in Chicago that don't deserve it. And Tempers does. And lastly, it's Monteverde, which is owned by Sarah Grunberg, who finished second in Top Chef a few years ago. Um, she Monteverde is an excellent Italian restaurant. I think what Michelin holds against Monteverde, it's it's maybe has 120 seats, and they they turn that restaurant. I mean, they they turn it two three times. They do 400, 500 covers a night up to, and I think Michelin is kind of holds it against it against them yet the food is really consistent and you have to give it to sarah who who does that in her kitchen who do a fantastic job creating these the, these amazing pasta dishes and other dishes um that and and that are i think are michelin quality and hopefully she gets her first michelin star i think she's very deserving but they've never done that before all the italian restaurants around the united states that have a star are smaller more intimate restaurants so let's get a recap. Smith gets a three star. And what are your other Tem- predictions? Tempest gets a star. Um, Monteverde gets a, a star, and those would be new. I think Oriel, I, I, I went early on the first year that Oriel was around. I didn't think, I, I thought it would get two stars that first year, which it did. I don't think it gets three stars this year. And I haven't been back since. But it could get three, but I gotta. I, to me, Smith is much further along than Oriole. So those are my few predictions that I have. So just to dip into how you compare with Chicago Tribune, you both have Temporis as getting one star. Uh, you both have Smith getting three stars. So that's interesting. Oh. Um, the Trib also noticed that the publican wasn't on the Bib Gorbon list this year and was speculating that that probably means an elevation to one star status as opposed to being dropped altogether. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't been to the publican in a few years, so I don't know. Okay. That could be anything else. The other thing they pointed out was um, a pretty splashy opening this year called Pacific standard time was on the bib gourmand list. Oh, they were not going to get us. I enjoyed, I, I went early on. I went two weeks after it opened early in Wu Bauer who was at Avec with under Paul Kahn. And Paul Kahn's an investor in Pacific Standard Time. Then er, er, Erling went to Nico Osteria. So I, I really enjoyed Pacific Standard Time. Given that it was just two weeks in, I thought things were really dialed in. So I, I enjoyed um, my meal at Pacific Standard Time. One of the best new restaurants in America this year. I think so. It's in my top 10. Would you give it a star if you were a Michelin guide in Chicago? No. Fair enough. So coming a little closer to home, uh, I was at the center of a mini, not a controversy, but I was, uh, I reported a pretty hot take here in Portland, um, a chef named Anthony Falco who lives in Queens, New York, and has given himself the job title of international pizza consultant, which is actually accurate. He travels the world, uh, 
helping people set up pizzerias. I think he's in Toronto right now, according to his Instagram, uh, came to Portland for an event, uh, an after party at the, or a kickoff party for the Feast Portland Food Festival. And I went up and introduced myself and chatted with him. And he told me that he thought Portland was, quote, the greatest pizza city in America. We talked about that for a little bit. And he was, uh, I guess his point was that there's a lot of Portland pizzerias that are making naturally leavened dough, you know, with using sourdough that they're use that they're making with maybe some kind of locally milled flour or otherwise a sort of interesting grain. So the doughs are having a lot of character. And he contrasted that with your average New York pizzeria where they're using bleached flours that may or may not be even very good for you. Um, and then he talked about the fact that we have all this incredible local produce here in Oregon that finds its way onto pizzas pretty easily because we have these foodways set up where, you know, produce gets to the restaurants pretty easily. Sometimes the farmers deliver it themselves. Um, so anyway, I printed that and that headline, Portland is the greatest pizza city in America was pretty controversial. I think someone compared it to the time Brooklyn got called the best place to eat barbecue in America. Uh, but the response was like, one. the response is like 75%. This is no. stupid oh. and wrong. And what do you think? 25% was like, well, Portland pizza is really great. So obviously I'm love pizza and I live here in Portland. So I've eaten basically every pizzeria in the city multiple times. And I thought it was a fun take. I liked his angle on it. I think we're blessed with a ton of pizza here, a ton of really, really good pizza, uh, pizza shoals, which is walking distance from my house here in Portland is you know, just an extremely, extremely good pizzeria. I think it belongs on national maps of the best. Um, Lovely's 5050, which is in North Portland, is like, you know, sort of unique, a unique Portland place where, you know, the pizzas are super, super seasonal. You might not know what's going to be on the menu when you get there. Um, lots of seasonal produce and great dough. And it's a really charming restaurant too. Um, Scotty's is the newer slice shop that is just kind of geeks out about pizza and, um, they're awesome. So I think like between those three and Ken's artisan pizza, which is another great, great wood fired pizza and his slice shop, uh, sorry, the Baker Ken Forkish's slice shop checkerboard. I mean, you're talking about like a four or five deep pizza scene where I would stack those top four or five against the top four or five anywhere in America. Including so, New York, including New Haven. Well, I mean, the I think all of America's pizza scene is changing so rapidly. Like there's a lot of places that are, have opened in New York since I lived there in 2003 that I didn't have a chance to eat at because they weren't open yet and might be amazing. Um, you know, the whole crew around, uh, uh, Roberta's. Well, that's where Falco worked actually was Roberta's. He put sort of put them on the map. Um, and they're in Los Angeles. They just opened in Los Angeles too. Yeah. Everyone's opening in LA. So, uh, you know, just, uh, it, it, it's really hard to say, but it's it's shocking to think that you could have said that about Portland. I mean, even five years ago, there was there's no way you would have said that about Portland. So, it's it's fun. What do you think? Well, I, I you know what my favorite pizza is. Is it Domino's? Yeah, thin crust Domino's. <laughs> Once a month, I'm always eating the thin crust Domino's. I think my one month is coming up soon. I do love thin crust Domino's. Not any other crust except for that thin crust Domino's. But I, I, I love Lovely's 50-50. I thought, I'm, I'm glad she got nominated for a James Beard. 
um, outstanding chef for Northwest last year because I think she's she as in Sarah Minnick is very deserving. And I, I I don't I've been to pizza shows a couple times this year. I I I understand why. I don't understand quite why everyone loves it as much as they love it. As in, this is one of the best pizzas in America. I I really like it, but I guess I got to go more just to really experience. I've I, I gone a couple times this year. I think it's great pizza, but really, that's the best one, of the best in the United States. I guess I got to try some of the other top twenty or whatever, top thirty. I I don't. I I went to Roberta's this year. Liked Roberta's. It's probably along with Chris Bianco's place. Pizza Bianco, yeah, Pizza Bianco in Phoenix. I feel like Portland's a Pizza Shoals. Those are the two regional pizzerias that really get called out. You know, maybe even more than places in SF and LA on the national scale. Like, um, you know, I guess Delancey's in Seattle could be on, in that mix too. I don't know if enough people have been there, but it's the it's the regional destination pizzeria that everybody has to write about when you're putting together one of those silly national maps of the best pizza in America. Yeah, I got to go I got to go again and again and again. But I I like pizza. I don't I don't like it, to me it's more of 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 the, you know, it's kind of like tra- for me it's kind of like tra- trashy. I get I I don't I don't crave a pizza shoals, yet I crave Domino's. I don't know, is it some chemical they put into those pizzas? I don't know. I just crave it. Like I I, you know, I order two mediums and they're gone in like half an hour. And the way you do it, you say you only eat once a month. You're like a, like an addict. Like, okay. Yeah. All right. It's been 30 days. I get, I get a craving. I get like, I get a craving for it. I don't get craving for a pizza shoals pizza or checkerboard and the great pizza. I like, I like ranch pizza. That's my new thing right now. I, I, I've been, I gotta admit, I've been kind of craving, um, ranch. Cause I, I've been, I went like almost once a week for a couple of weeks. They have a spam pizza. They, well, yeah, it's on the Hawaiian. They put spam on there, like actual spam on the Hawaiian pizza. I'm in, man. Yeah, I like you haven't ranch. had it yet. That I haven't one had that pie. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, the last restaurant topic I have on my list here is, uh, you know, parts unknown. That's Anthony Bourdain's show. Just aired their f- first episode of their new season, which is sort of their last season, but not quite. And then. What I understand is this is the last episode that Bourdain narrated. So obviously part of that show is Bourdain writes a little, you know, script for it and reads it. And his voice is such a big part of that show. And he may have written scripts for future episodes, but he had not recorded them yet. So the rest of the episodes, as I understand it in this season are going to be, maybe they'll be narrated by somebody else or they won't have narration. I'm not sure how they're going to do it yet, but it, it will feel like different in a sense. This is the last Bourdain show from the no reservations or, or even a cook's tour lineage all the way to parts unknown that will feel like it always has. So I think you watched it. I watched it live. Oddly enough. I'm, I don't usually do that. You know, I record it, but happened to pop down and he had met another CNN host, uh, W Kamau Bell from a show called uh, United Shades of America and asked him, where in the world do you want to go? It turns out Kamau's name is Kenyon. He comes from the Bay Area and from a town, East Palo Alto, that had once thought about changing its name to Nairobi. Um, And anyway, they go to Kenya together and they do all the Bourdain stuff. They eat a goat's eyeball and they drink blood and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know. I just wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts about it. I I don't think either of us are Bourdain super, super fans, but like I was obviously like everybody, he's such a 
huge figure. And well, I have a feeling you've watched many, many more episodes than I ever have. Do you? Do you? Do you did you always find him that com- compelling? Well, there's gaps for me in in the series. Like I haven't watched a ton. I haven't watched all the parts unknowns. I missed a couple of seasons of No Reservations. I remember going back and watching the early seasons of No Reservations. And he really, at the time, still seemed to me like he was a writer. He was a writer first and foremost. So he would go somewhere. Like if he, if he went to Portland, which he did, he met up with Chuck Palahniuk, the writer of Fight Club. If he went to, um, you know, London, he might do, I'm not saying he did this, but he might do a whole episode where it was like Dickens themed or Sherlock Holmes themed or something like that. So it felt like he had a theme. It was usually literary and he carried it through the episode. And it seemed like as time went on, he really expanded, he pushed through that and really embraced the TV medium. And as you saw in that episode last night, I mean, one of the things he was so good at was trying to find real people doing cool things in the places he went and letting them talk with their authentic voice. So, you know, I think last night there, he went to a, a boxing gym and talked to a woman who is a champion Kenyan boxer. He went to an LGBTQ art show, which is pretty revolutionary there. And he talked to some like up and coming fashion designers who are trying to push against this wave of secondhand clothes that gets sent to Kenya. Um, you know, all those things to me, it, uh, I don't know that every host would go that deep. You know, I think that was sort of one of his, his best assets was going a little deeper, not just talking to the PR people and the tourist guides, you know, but actually talking to finding real people. Yeah. He's going to be sorely missed. And, um, even though I was not a, a big fan of his, so when he, when he passed, it didn't impact me the way it impacted thousands hundreds of thousands of others because i remember ig just blew up because i only have an ig account now instagram account so it's just all these people saying how much anthony bourdain influenced them and their thoughts and feelings about food and many people said this is the reason why i'm a chef for i'm in the business is because of anthony bourdain and the impact he had on so many people is thought-provoking even though it had basically zero impact on me because i didn't i'm just just i didn't find him that i mean I don't know. I hate to say I didn't find him that compelling, but I just didn't watch very many of the episodes. If I, you know, if he was in a certain city that I was intrigued about, I would watch an episode and I'd be, I'd say, okay, that's good. But it didn't compel me to watch other episodes. Yeah. And I mean, the whole thing is under this cloud of the fact that he took his own life and we're all, you know, that's something inexplicable. And you, as a, as a, someone who's in restaurant media, you know, I have a different angle on it than chefs. Like I think chefs read kitchen confidentially seem like such a badass that they're like, Oh yeah, I want to get in that kitchen. It's hot. I've got knives, you know? But for me, it was like, here's this guy who reinvented himself at 40 something and became like one of the most compelling TV hosts bar none, regardless of what he was talking about, travel food, whatever. I mean, he just, you know, he just seemed like the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with, I guess. Okay. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that cloud is hanging over the the remaining shows. There's a very few episodes left, right? It's hard. I think for everybody, cooks or or media, it's like, well, this guy had the perfect life in a sense. You know, we were we were all jealous of him a little bit. I mean, I think you can say that. Like, he's he just seems so effortlessly cool, and you know, you wonder why. 
And I think people, I think the brain is going to skyrocket this this season because of that. Find out they'll look for clues maybe as to why he did what he did, but yeah. we'll never know. And it's kind of it's, it'll be sad for the people who love Parts Unknown and all his television shows. So, uh, all right. Well, one last thing we wanted to chat about. <laughs> Awkward transition here, I guess. Uh, you know, we wanted to kind of wrap up each show by talking a little bit about sports because we're both sports fans. Um, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> it's a little different, but uh, you you suggested chatting a little bit about men's tennis. What do you uh, got? Yeah, I mean, here we have. It's been. I, the, the the season has wrapped up because we were going to do this episode around the t- time the U.S. Open was happening, and now that all four majors are done, we have Roger Federer with twenty, we have Nadal with seventeen, and we have Djokovic with fourteen. And a few years ago, Michael and I made a gentleman's bet. I thought this is like a, three years ago. I thought that Djokovic, I a gentleman's bet that Djokovic would win more majors than Roger Federer. And right now, Djokovic trails Federer by six, and Nadal is in between the two. You can see Nadal winning the next three. Uh, who, who? And right now, there is no question. Roger Federer is the best men's tennis player in history. Is that correct? Would you agree with that? No question. But I mean, I can see. I, I. Do you think Federer is going to win another major? No. And I neither do I. I thought that a few years ago, and he won three. I think since then, great for him. Nadal. If he's healthy, I i mean, he, he didn't drop a set in this year's French Open. He's 30, I want to say 32. I could be wrong about that. I think he's 32. I think Djokovic is 31. Um, let's say Nadal gets to 20 and Federer has 20. Who's the best tennis player in history? If they're tied, I still think it's Federer just because I, I mean, this is always personal, obviously, but, you know, I just appreciated Federer's uh, skill and grace and the, you know, how impossible some of the shots he seemed were i mean like you have djokovic uh who you know his signature thing is being a defensive specialist he's able to get any ball back into play uh that you you know any serve is going to come back into play he's just amazing I mean, you look at the u.s open that's pretty much how he took it um he had something like at one point he had something like 80 percent of del post serves were you know going back into play um so it, he just seems more machine-like to me and Federer seems more graceful. And it's, it's just a personal preference, I guess. What about you? Well, here, here's the one name that no one brings up. And I guess he's not really... Andy Murray? No, Yay, sorry. Scottish pride. Is, that actually, this is... The, I was thinking about Rod Laver. Most people don't know that Rod Laver actually has two, two... He actually did two Grand Slams in the same calendar year, back in 62 and 69. He was barred from major championships from 63 to 68. So there were 20 major championships he wasn't able to compete in because he was a pro. And they only allowed amateurs back in those days. So he has 11 major championships. I, Rod Laver is a name that everyone forgets. He'll never get, to, obviously, I mean, he, he, he can never probably be included in the discussion of who the greatest man's tennis player is. But here's the thing. I still think Djokovic has a chance to get to 20 and exceed Federer. But right now, granted, Federer is the best tennis player in history. If Nadal gets to 20 and Federer gets to 20, it's still Federer because I, th- I think Nadal would have won, if he wins the next three French Opens, I think it'll be 13 French Opens. That's just, and it's, the red clay is such a specialized surface that whereas all the other surfaces are more egalitarian, 
uh, a baseliner could win the championship at the at the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, or the Australian. Uh, a person who uh, who charges the net can also win. Whereas in the with red clay, it's it's a very specific skill set that always wins. Although Federer did win one French Open, and it was because I think it was Soderling who knocked out Nadal, or it might have been that Nadal was injured that year. But I think it was Soderling who knocked off Nadal in that uh, in that French Open. So luckily, Federer does have a career Grand Slam. He has one French Open. Well, but, the, the interesting thing is. Uh, uh, maybe this will be a theme in the podcast is as having Scottish parents, I follow a lot of Scottish culture and sports, but, um, Murray, it's all, it, I, I have a ton of pride in Murray. And for the past 10 years or so, they've talked about tennis as a big four because, uh, those four guys, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, and Murray have won everything. Uh, basically every major for a stretch of more than five years was won by one of them. That's but, not quite true because Stanislav Wawrinka. Stanislav took the one. That's right. Actually, he has two, if not three, majors. So yeah, the interesting thing is like as these guys are coming to their decline, I hear a lot less about the big four, and I sometimes read stories about Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer that don't mention Murray, and I think that's probably fair. I mean, Murray's had a great career. He's probably top twenty-five all time. Um, you know, winning Wimbledon for the first time as a Brit for decades, and you know. U.S. Open, gold medal. These are all like incredible things and there's nothing to sneeze at. But even I can stop and say, you know, he's probably not at the level of these guys who are winning 14, 17, 20 majors. But it's been a golden era in men's tennis. There, there, there's never been an era where there have been this many great men's tennis players in one at one time. Back in the old days, 50s, 60s, you had the Australians, Tony Roach. John Newcomb, Rod Laver, Kenny Rosewall. But it was, it's not the world, it wasn't, you don't have people from all around the world playing tennis then as you do now. And where all the players, except for Renka and Federer, are from different countries. And you don't have anyone from the US who's amongst the top. In, in that golden era, uh, a group of men, there's no US players. Sampras, Sampras was the last great US player. Which is, and it makes it even more difficult to attain majors. And this year, all the majors were won by Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. We'll see when another major is won by someone other than those three. I think Australian, if, I'm, if I were betting right now, if I got good odds, I'd take Djokovic. I think he wins Australian this year. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against him. He looked great in the U.S. Open. Do you think he, could get, do you think he will... Do you think he'll reach 20 or 21? It's a pretty tall order. I mean, you have to have perfect health. You have to ensure that no up-and-coming star, you know, picks up the pace. Um, he definitely looked like he had Del Potro's number, so that's one challenger who I feel like he could beat in almost any scenario. Del Potro's scary because he, he just blow people away. When he's hot, he, just, he blew. I've seen him in the finals, the major championships, just absolutely kill Federer, just destroy him. Well, we'll see, and the bet is outstanding, and yeah. I think I'll win, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, so just to sign off here for Watkins Welcome. Are we sticking to that name? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I like yeah. the name. Um, kind of has a ring to, like, no reservations, actually, when oh, you think okay. about it. I didn't think about it when I <laughs> thought of the name, but okay. Um, so I can be reached, uh, you know, Instagram, Twitter, at, at TDM Russell. Um and uh, if you guys have questions or things you want to talk about, feel free to 
engage me on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. And Gary is at? At Gary the Foodie on Instagram, only Instagram. You Sorry. already follow Gary, so don't worry about that. Bye, all. Good eating. Bye.